every single emotion is worthy of feeling because every single emotion is human, every single emotion is healthy, and every single emotion is temporary. And like with all things that are fleeting, they're valuable. You know, I believe that there were some emotions that were bad and some that were good. And coming to this understanding that emotions aren't bad or good or right or wrong, they are. And what they can really be is a way to look at yourself and say, my body is saying, recognize this moment for it is significant. And it is an opportunity for you to gain self-awareness. For this fleeting moment, you can sit in this emotion and learn more about yourself. Don't waste it, don't fight it, don't resist it, don't avoid it. Because you're avoiding your full authentic self. Hi, hi, this is Christina, and that was Adam Sass. I did not have enough words for this guy. He has one incredible story of profound recovery from drug addiction, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, He lost over 200 pounds and came back from deep depression where in his darkest moments he attempted suicide. Today, Adam is a vibrant and passionate health coach who runs marathons and speaks at health immersions. I think what strikes me the most about him is his humility, um, the profound desire to be of service and an incredible clarity which he's so masterful at communicating. Adam has touched the lives of thousands of people through his work as a diabetes and food addiction coach at Master in Diabetes, through many podcasts that he has done, including ritual podcasts and speeches that he gave. But there is absolutely nothing I can say to do the justice of his story and the person, the wonderful person that he is. Adam's message resonated so deeply with me, and I, uh, I don't think I've ever cried so much while recording the episode. So I truly hope that you receive from this conversation as much as I did, maybe minus the crying. So enjoy. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Follow Your Time Podcast. And I'm Christina, and today we have Adam Sad. I'm super excited to have him on the show. Hi, Adam. Hi. How are you? I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Good, good. I'm so excited that uh, Robbie, our mutual friend Robbie, suggested I uh, reach out to you. And I'm so glad that you said yes. Uh, and I just, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I have about a thousand questions to ask <laughs> you. And your, your life and your story is just so rich. And um, um, I just can't wait to dive into it. So I thought a good way to start is um, uh, uh, bringing up the 10-year, the hashtag 10-year challenge that's going around on, on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media accounts. And uh, right. it, just, it just speaks volume uh, and, and it's, a, it's a great snapshot and attention grabber uh, from your story that, that I saw you post. So from your 10-year challenge, you said that um, you, you gained eight years of your life and lost diabetes, heart disease, drug addiction, suicidal depression, and over 200 pounds. Yeah. So this is just an incredible transformation, and uh, I can only imagine how much power, courage, and, and faith, and, and hope it, it took to do that. Um, so maybe we can just start from the beginning and, and see sure. how you got there and what, what, what made you change. Yeah. So, you know, it started, it started honestly, you know, it really started when I was a kid. Um, I had this... Uh, uh, increasing belief that there was something inherently broken in me. Um, I've always, I always struggled with sort of a self-image issue um, and the way that I viewed myself and how I uh, approached the world 
I was criticized a lot um, by my parents and they, they only had the best intentions. I, I don't harbor any resentment for this. Um, I was criticized a lot for wanting to eat, you know, junk food. And I was confused by it because so much of these foods that I wanted to eat that I wasn't allowed to eat were in our house. And I, you know, I would watch as my mom and my dad so easily refrain from eating these foods. And for whatever reason, I just, I didn't feel like I could go without it. I loved it. I wanted it all the time. And the thing I feared the most growing up was not being accepted by those who I loved. And I was so afraid of them seeing me uh, engage in this behavior, not being able to stop eating this food that I decided I was going to hide this from them. And I started closet eating when I was really young. Um, I would hide in my room in the closet sometimes or just in my bedroom with the light off. And I would sit alone in the dark and I would eat you know, junk food because I was so afraid and I was so ashamed um, that at any moment, I, I, what I feared most was that at any moment that door was gonna open, the light was gonna come on and my parents were gonna see me for what I really was. They were gonna see that I was broken. They were gonna see that I was you know, not worthy of their acceptance and their love and that um, they, would, they would be disappointed in who I was as a person. Um, How old were you then? Do you remember? Ten. Mm-hmm. And um, not too long after that, probably middle school, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was put on Ritalin. And um, I just viewed this as another example of how broken I was, you know, that here I was being told by a doctor there's something about me that doesn't work right um, and that, you know, that school doesn't like about me and that, you know, I, um, I will now, as long as I took this pill, they put me on Ritalin, as long as I took a pill, it was going to fix what was wrong with me. And I, you know, I remember thinking that, you know, using that term fix as if I was broken and needed to be fixed. Mm. And um, I think from that point on, I would, was constantly observing the way people responded to me and was hyper aware of whether or not there was any indication that they didn't like something about me. And if I noticed that, I was going to find a way to fix whatever it was about me that they didn't like because that was just something else that was broken about me. I was constantly, constantly hyper aware of what other people thought about me. And it mattered very, very much to me. And I moved to, um, we moved to Austin, Texas from Houston um, right before I started high school. So I started high school without having any friends. And I was a little bit overweight in high school. Um, I started puberty late. So, um, you know, I wasn't as tall as some of the other guys. I wasn't as strong as some of the other guys, you know, and um, I wasn't as developed as some of the other guys. And so um, I felt inadequate. Um, I went to a school in Texas, in Austin. It was a big football school. And, um, you know, I certainly could not have gone out for football. Um, And I remember when I got invited to to one of these parties, it was typical of this high school, Westlake High School in Austin. Um, a friend of mine called me and said, you know, you got to come and I want you to bring your Adderall prescription with you. Um, Cause I'd started taking Adderall in high school instead of Ritalin. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand why I was like, well, what do you, what do you, why should I bring my Adderall prescription? Remember this is like 1997 or 98. And um, I said, well, you know, if you take a bunch of it, it's a lot of fun. You can stay up all night and you have all this energy. And, you know, I just wanted to make friends. 
And I didn't, you know, know it was an issue. And so, yeah, I brought it with me. I mean, and I can tell you, I remember the moment I used it as a recreational drug. I remember the feeling. And it was like, it was instant. I was fixed. Hmm. I was fixed. Everything that I felt was broken in me was either fixed or on its way to being fixed. Like Adderall is amphetamine. That's what it is. So I didn't want to eat. Great. There's the answer to that problem. I'm going to lose the weight that I didn't like about myself. Um, I had so much confidence in myself and I had all this energy. I was the life of the party. I could talk to people. Everything was interesting. I had loads of energy. Um, I didn't always have, I certainly then did not have the best work ethic, Um, especially when it came to my habits. And my dad, who's very much a type A personality, you know, I would butt heads about that. You know, he didn't understand why I couldn't just sit down and study. And I didn't understand why it was such an issue for him that I didn't work the way that he liked to work. But when I'm on a lot of Adderall, that solved that problem pretty quick. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it enabled me to mask the authentic version of myself and become the person that everyone else, that I thought everyone else needed me to be. And I thought I needed to be in order to be happy. And it worked. It worked so well. I lost the weight. I, you know, I had, I made so many friends. I had a wonderful time in high school. I had girlfriends and went to parties and, um, and I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. And, and you know what? I didn't ever think it was an issue. You know, I just thought this drug was doing everything it's supposed to do. It's supposed to fix what's wrong with me. And it was fixing what was wrong with me. And so the more of it I took was just going to make me more of the person I was supposed to be. And it got out of hand in college. My tolerance went through the roof. Um, and I started to need more and more and more of the drug. And that, that need for more became the most important concern of my entire life. How much did I have left? How long was it going to last? Where was I going to get more? How much was that going to cost? Like these concerns were becoming the more and more overwhelming as the drug became more and more overwhelming. And so I ended up dropping out of college. Um, I dropped out of college and began a life as a criminal drug addict um, where I was doctor shopping, where you have multiple doctors prescribing you the same medication without them knowing about each other. That's a felony. I was forging prescriptions, which is a serious crime. I was Stealing and stealing. I was, you know, scamming people out of, you know, money. I was consistently treating my family like garbage. And uh, I started to become incredibly isolated and depressed. And um, when I wasn't able to get money from my parents or, you know, by doing whatever it was I needed to do to get money, I would, uh, and I couldn't get drugs, I would, su- I would substitute with fast food. And that fast food became a secondary addiction of mine. Um, just to give a perspective to listeners about how how high your tolerance was, what yeah. is the, the general daily prescriptions? What about thirty milligrams, and you were taking? Yeah, so typically the prescription is between five and forty milligrams. That's what they typically rec- uh, will prescribe somebody. So average like twenty, thirty milligrams. Um, the last five or so years of my addiction, I was doing four hundred and fifty milligrams in a twenty-four hour period. Wow. Yeah, it was really bad. Um, and I would do that for about six days straight, um, where I wouldn't sleep for those six days. Um, I would like at all, at all, like no, none. And, um, I would, uh, end up 
going into the beginning stages of a psychosis where a lot of things I would hear things that weren't really happening. I would hallucinate. I wouldn't, um, I would say things that I wasn't aware I was saying. Um, I would, uh, develop very extreme obsessive compulsive tics, um, that I couldn't control and become debilitating. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be very diaphoretic all the time and sweating. I, you know, my fast food addiction had, uh, enabled me to reach a weight of about 350 pounds. Um, and I, I just sort of let all my self-care go. I started living like a hoarder. Um, I lived in like a pile of garbage. Um, and I wasn't showering or, you know, doing any kind of hygiene at all. And um, how old are you at this point? So that went on from age probably 26 to 30. Um, and, uh, but it was during that, that point in between the, I think I was about 27 years old, 28 years old, when my dad um, approached me with this, op, this um, proposal. He said, um, you know, Whole Foods Market, my dad has been a part of Whole Foods Market since the very beginning of the company. And he said, you know, Whole Foods Market has just partnered with this man named Rip Esselstyn. And uh, he's the author of this new book called The Engine 2 Diet. And his father is Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. And he and Whole Foods Market are going to put on this seven-day retreat where you will go and you will learn how to live a plant-strong lifestyle. Is this the, the trademark that Rip Esselstyn came up with? Because plants are strong food, so it's plant-strong lifestyle. Um, and I really want you to go. That's what he said to me. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's really only available to Whole Foods Market team members, but they're about to start and they have some spots open and I'll get you in. Um, you know, there's spots open now that are available and we'll go talk to Rip and we'll see if they'll let you go. And I had no intention of listening to anything that Rip had to say. Certainly didn't, did not care at all about a plant-based lifestyle. Um, I didn't, you know, want to change anything. But what I did want to do was manipulate my dad into giving me more money. So I knew that if I said yes, I'd be able to do that. And that was my motivation. Like, I'm being 100% honest here. That's, that was it. That was what did it for me. And uh, I can remember when I went, um, I was high when I went. Um, I brought more than enough drugs to keep me high the entire time. And I was. In fact, I was so physically and uh, I, I was so disruptive, just my appearance. I was very toxic. Um, I smelled very toxic because I was only eating fast food and doing loads of drugs. Um, before I was very diaphoretic, where I was always flushed red and sweating, so I was sweating profusely all the time. My appearance was so disruptive to people at the immersion that they were, uh, they were getting complaints about me. And they actually had a meeting where they were gonna determine whether or not they were gonna have to remove me from the program. Oh my God. And um, I can say for sure that the reason why I was not removed is one of the, the things I admire most about Rip Esselstyn to this day is that he will never cease to see the good in everybody. And I know that the Engine 2 team said that they didn't see someone disrupted. They saw someone who needed this more than anything else. And um, I listened to everything that was being said and I listened to these amazing presenters, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Jeff Novick, uh, Doug Lyle, um, Rip Esselstyn, Jane Ann Esselstyn, all these incredible luminaries people. And I listened to them about how I would just make the simple change of what I put on my plate that I could own my health and well-being. 
and that I could not only reverse my conditions that I'm in now, I didn't know how sick I was at the time, and I would soon find out, but um, I could also prevent further conditions. And it spoke to a core value of mine. Um, there was a trainer there named John Pierre. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know him. I've met him before. He's amazing. He's one of my favorite people on the planet. And John Pierre made, uh, asked me to watch a film the first night. The film was Earthlings. And, um, and I, to this day, I've, I've watched the whole film, but I've never been able to watch it straight through. Right? So, um, and I was I've not been, able to finish it. I started yeah. it and I was not able to finish it. And he said, just watch this, Adam. Just mm -hmm. watch this and then come tell me in the morning how you feel. Not what you thought, but how you feel. And so him wording it that way enabled me to sort of let my, my bias and ego go and go into it feelingly mm -hmm. um, and, and, and notice that what I felt, I felt that it was wrong. And I knew that it was wrong. Like I grew up an animal lover, very, very much so. I, you know, never, I would never, never have wanted to, never will hunt. Um, I've always been in support of endangered species and stuff like this, but there was this disconnection through culture that some animals are worthy of our protection and some are food. And I just hadn't been, I hadn't been given the opportunity to awaken to that understanding. And John Pierre gave that to me with that film. And so Sean Munson gave that gift to me as well. Um, and I came in and I told him, I said, you know, if there's going to be one thing that, that might get me to do this, it's that film and what you did. And, but you know what? I just, I was so miserable. I felt powerless. I felt worthless. And I was in so much physical pain by being alive. The only thing that gave me any sense of pleasure and allowed me to get through my day was my drugs. And I just couldn't give it up. And even though I knew better and I, you know, I regretted it, I continued to eat the junk food. You know, I did. And it hurt my soul, uh, especially after, you know, seeing a film like Earthlings, but also knowing inherently mm -hmm. that a core value of mine doesn't want to harm any other living being. Um, I just allowed that disconnection to, to, to stay with me. Um, but about a, a year and a half after I left the immersion, um, I was sitting in my apartment. And I had conversations with my brother, my twin brother. Um, where I'd said, you know, Bobby, he and I are incredibly close, always have been. Um, I said, you know, Bobby, I'm, I'm really struggling, and um, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this, but I want you to know that you never have to worry about me taking my own life because I don't ever want to live my life without you, and I wouldn't want you to live your life without me. Um, but on August 21st of 2012, I attempted suicide by overdose. Um, I uh, was sitting on my couch and I, you know, I just came to this, this thought came to my head that, you know, nothing's ever going to get any better. There's really no way out of this. I was about a month away from being homeless. I was very scared. I was very angry. And in a, uh, an impulse, I just threw a handful of pills down my throat. And I, like, look, it's not that I thought my family didn't want to live without me, didn't want me, right, or didn't love me. It's just I didn't see any other way of ending it, of, of getting out of it. And um, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. Um, there certainly wasn't anything beautiful about feeling like you're going to die. Uh, it was very painful. Um, 
I blacked out and I woke up uh, in a puddle of my own vomit in a pile of fast food garbage. Um, you know, I'd nearly died at the age of 30 from a life of self-abuse, self-hatred, and a denial of my emotions and, my, and, and what I was doing to myself. And I had a very clear understanding that if I didn't radically change how I moved through the world, my family was going to spend every day of the rest of their lives asking themselves why I needed to eat and drug myself to death. And at the time, that was my reason for reaching out. It wasn't about me yet. It was, let me not let that be their reality. Mm. Um, and so I called my parents and I asked for help. And um, um, they amazingly and Look, they had every reason not to even answer the phone. Um, all they said when I asked for help was, that's all we want to do for you. And uh, two weeks later, I checked into rehab, where within 72 hours, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, suicidal depression, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder. Within the 72 hours after... Yeah, after checking in, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was put on a, um, a cabinet's worth of medication. Um, I mean, my, so you're, you're a physician. You'll know this. My A1C was a 12. I'm, I'm not a physician. I just oh. work in a hospital. Okay. But <laughs> I, yeah. I still get the numbers, but just to okay. clarify, I'm not a physician. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I was very type 2 diabetic. My, my blood pressure was like 120-something, I mean, 20-something over 100-something. Um, my, my resting heart rate when I got up in the morning was 120. Um, I, you know, I had to accept that, you know, getting sober was not enough. And it was terrifying because I, I couldn't do anything but accept that I had done all this to myself, right? I learned from the Engine 2 retreat that uh, all of it was a result of what I had chosen to put on my plate, how I chose to move through the world, and my unwillingness to uh, accept myself as an emotional person, right? So I couldn't blame my genetics, couldn't do any of that stuff. And I was ready to quit, ready to leave. Uh, I went back to my room and I called my dad and I told him I was leaving. I told him, you know, I, I had agreed only to get off the drugs. Now I found out I have heart disease, I have diabetes, I have all these other psych conditions I don't understand yet. And it's too much for me and I, I want to leave. Really what I was saying was I was really afraid. And he heard that. And he had a very heartfelt talk with me. Where, you know, he, he helped me understand that not only did I know that most of the stuff I, I had been diagnosed with was reversible, um, but I also knew how to reverse it. The heart disease, the diabetes, the obesity, these things were reversible. And I also knew how to do it. And I remember him saying to me, you know, Adam, if there's something about your life that you don't like and you can do something about it, then it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And help me come to the understanding that, yeah, I was the problem. But because I was the problem, I get to be the solution, which meant I didn't have to wait for anyone or anything to start making my life better. So when I left rehab and moved into sober living, I decided I was going to transition to a plant-based diet. And I would get up every morning for the first week or so, really angry. Not that I had to eat the diet, right? But because I was struggling with this 
question where I would go into the kitchen of my sober living facility and I would open the pantry for breakfast and there would be fruity pebbles and there would be oatmeal. And I knew if I ate the oatmeal, my health would get better. I also knew that if I ate the fruity pebbles, my health would get worse and I would end up you know, getting more sick and I would probably die. And so knowing the consequences of both choices, why in the world would I want to eat the fruity pebbles? It's not that I disliked oatmeal. So why in the world would I want to make a choice that I knew was going to harm my health when I knew the, when I knew the, the better choice? So why was this whole thing not simply a matter of intellect and will? Why can I not know what to do, know how to do it? And then that's the end of the story, no struggle, that's it. And I remembered Doug Lyle's talk at the immersion. And I said, I remember him talking about something like this. I wasn't fully paying attention in that one because it wasn't about nutrition or I thought it wasn't. And so I went back and I Googled him and I found his TED talk, The Pleasure Trap. And after those 17 minutes, everything about the way I viewed my recovery was completely changed because I came to understand there was actually a biological mechanism at play that was compelling me to seek the most amount of pleasure for the least amount of pain and the least amount of energy, which means that when I eat the fruity pebbles or I popped Adderall, it, it elicited such a dopamine response that was so far outside the bounds of normal human experience that my body actually believed it was biologically beneficial, right? Because dopamine is what gives us the feeling of pleasure. But I didn't know that pleasure was a biological mechanism to let us know that we've done something biologically beneficial for us. So when I ate these foods and I did those drugs, my body basically went, bravo. <laughs> Whatever that was, you've got to keep doing it because nowhere in our evolution have we ever experienced a pleasure response that high. It has to be the greatest thing ever discovered for human health. And it also has to be so rare that there can be so few of it left. So eat it all as much as you can. And what this told me was that the reason why, even though I wanted to get sober, even though I wanted to get healthy, even though I knew the right thing to do, why I didn't want to do it. And I knew that the reason why I didn't want to do it wasn't because there was anything wrong with me. It wasn't a lack of willpower. It wasn't a, a moral, lack of like moral fortitude or anything like that. It was because my body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. There was nothing wrong with me at all. All I had to do was get up and be willing to do in order to make my life better, in order to change, in order to get to a point where eating the oatmeal was no longer a chore, in order to get to the point where I actually got up and looked forward to it, I had to be doing, willing to do one thing every day, be comfortable being uncomfortable. If I could do that, I could change my life. And I remember thinking to myself, I've got to come up, you know, like everyone says, you got to find your why, right? You got to find your why. And so why was I want to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable and you know most people looking at my situation would say oh that's easy because you didn't want to be obese you didn't want to be a diabetic and you didn't want you know you didn't want to die and not one of those reasons was why I decided to do this yeah I was obese of course I didn't want to I didn't want to be obese it's painful I was diabetic of course I didn't want to be diabetic I, mean, I don't want to lose my eyesight I don't want to lose the lips. I don't want to prick my finger three times a day 
I, and I nearly died from substance abuse and suicide attempt. You know, I, I honestly did not want to die. Why not? What was it about my life and myself that I loved enough that I was willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable? Not what was it about my life that I hated enough? Because I had told myself that I was so done with hating myself. I knew that I had always hated my way into really destructive behaviors. Hating myself always drove me to hurting and harming my health and my life. And this was not going to be about hating my way out of a bad situation, but rather loving myself into a positive one. That uh, I was, you know, I don't believe that we remove negativity from our lives. I believe that what happens is we end up bringing in more positivity, that it crowds out the negative. I think that, that that's the way that we work. I honestly do. I love it. I have a great friend who always says that sometimes maybe she cannot necessarily stop do, doing the wrong thing, but she can start doing the right thing. And it, and it yeah. crowds out, as you said, those behaviors. You just do it more and more and more. The more of the good that you do, the less of the bad you're doing. But don't focus on trying to do less negative. Focus on doing more positive. You know, a, a good friend of mine, Tara Kim, says that... Um, I love her. She's, she's a gem. Um, she's like truly a gift to this world. Uh, she said that fear is a great catalyst for short-term change, but love is the only catalyst for long-term change. And I could not agree more with her on that. Mm. You know, when I got up every single day and I prepared a plant-based meal on a plate that was about health and wellness, that was about creating a healthier version of myself today than I was the day before, that's an act of self-care and self-love. That's an affirmation of recovery for me. That's me saying that today I choose, I'm choosing to create positivity and bring positivity into my life. And that helped me learn that even though I'm struggling with these really you know, complex emotions that I've never given myself the opportunity to understand, that even if those are happening, at the end of the day, I'm always going to make positive change as long as I have behaviors in my life that bring them into my life, which made me refocus my whole outlook on this. This was not about removing disease. This was not about weight loss. This was not about removing drugs from my life. This was about falling in love with the behaviors that brought those things to me. Right? If I did that, if I fell in love with eating plants, if I fell in love with acts of self-care and meditation and an understanding of all emotions through meditation and recovery, if I fell in love with purposeful movement like running or whatever it is that I do, if I fell in love with those things, all the results would take care of themselves. I don't have to worry about it. But I certainly wouldn't want to live this way if I didn't fall in love with it. And that's what it was going to be about for me. And it helped me learn that every single day I had an option of making a choice between a lot of times between what I wanted now and what I wanted most. And what I wanted most was to become the most authentic version of myself that I could so that I could be with people that I loved and be there for them. Mm -hmm. Right. To experience what it's like to be with people like my family and my friends and just be with them instead of trying to take from them because as soon as my substance abuse issues became out of control, I stopped being with people. I started using them. And I, I wanted to see what it would be like for me to be the most authentic version of myself and experience what life is like to give of me to others. I thought it would be a gift to rediscover that person because he's, 
that person, that version of myself has always been there, but I had forgotten how to be that person. Right. I'd forgotten how to, how to move from that place through the world. And I wanted to discover that. And that was really my why. And over the course of six months, I completely reversed the diabetes and the heart disease. Um, after about a year, I'd lost not only over 100 pounds, but I was off of all of my medications, including all my psych medications, my antidepressants, mood stabilizers, sleeping medications, anxiety medications. That is just remarkable. If I may, I want yeah. to explore on that point just a little bit more. So um, sure. it, it, I mean, it's remarkable that, that you're able to have that realization and to approach it from a place of love and, and introducing love into your life versus it, it just expanding and drilling yeah. down in your hate. But I'm really curious because this is one of the things that I'm, um, it just, I, I don't understand is how, where is that, tipping point what it is that helps some people to to be able to realize and clearly see and, and feel their rock button and then use it as a motivator to turn their life around and then what it is that prevents some people from seeing that so i i hear you that you were you were you did hit a very low rock button you were mm -hmm. in a very yeah. very dark place and then it also sounds like you there were kind of messages that were sent your way from you know from the engine to diet retreat uh, and the, the the movie that you saw yeah. that helped you gain clarity and and just the unconditional love from your parents and and just other realizations that you, you made on your own but i'm i'm still I mean, you were, you, you, hypothetically, you could have like approached the things with love before, you know, what, what made it, what, what did it for you this time? What was it that, that served as a trigger for you to be able to see what is happening and to have the courage and hope and faith to act upon your newly realized <clears throat> power of love? Well, for one, the suicide attempt was a huge motivator. Um, because like I mentioned before, that was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then being, a, being, you know, confronted with the reality of my state of health meant that I might have to experience that feeling again. And I didn't want to be afraid of that. I didn't want the fear of that to be the reason that, that, that made me willpower my way through every day. Right. I, I, I looked at how did I get to that point? I got to that point by through constant acceptance of fear, anger, and hatred for myself. Mm -hmm. right? um, and what drove those things was ego, 100%. Ego is the biggest enemy that you have when you're trying to change your life. Because for me, my ego wanted me to believe I was right all the time. And I had to, a good friend of mine, David Clark, who's also in recovery, and he's huge inspiration of mine says that for him um, it had to be about being willing to drop your ego long enough to stop trying to be right and start trying to be right now and when you can do that you have the ability to learn more about yourself than you ever have in your life that recovery in my opinion and i'm sure he feels the same way is not about being right or wrong there's, there's no right or wrong in recovery. It's about what can I do to make positive change on myself and the world around me on a daily basis. And that, has, that does not give a crap about who's right or wrong. It doesn't matter at the end. The end of the day, it doesn't matter who was right or who was wrong. It's what have you done 
in order to bring positivity into your life and to move you forward with actions that are in alignment with the type of person and the type of life that you want to live. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong about the, the implementation of those things. Like if you thought it was, if I thought it was going to be okay for me to continue eating cheeseburgers and someone said, no, Adam, it's not. It's actually, you know, if you did this, um, if you ate a plant-based diet, you would reverse those diseases. And I was so, if I allowed my ego to block me from hearing that, I could be, I could believe myself right to the grave. Good job. Or I could say, you know what? Clearly, if you looked at the state of my health when I got into recovery, <laughs> clearly, I don't know how to live as a, as a healthy physical person. I also didn't know any other way to do it. And so once I came to that realization, I was willing to break open and say, look, I don't know what I'm doing. I also don't know any other way of doing it. But Rip Esselstyn says, if I do this, my life and my health will get better. So let me just try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I'll try something else. I don't have to be right. He doesn't have to be right. It doesn't matter. But if I accept it and just do it, maybe my life will benefit. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. I guarantee you, Rip doesn't care that he was right. But I certainly care that my life got better. And I know that that matters to him. And so that's really like, you know, I looked at all these things and, and I, I had to drop my ego. I had to remember that I had to really, you know, I had to, so, so it's, it's, I'll hear this a lot when I work with people. They get, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a month into plant-based eating and I'm still fighting cravings. Why are you fighting cravings? Cravings are a human thing. The goal of my life is not to live without craving, you know, temptation from other foods and stuff like that, but rather to, if they happen, be okay with it and still make the choices that brings me positive change. Every single emotion is worthy of feeling because every single emotion is human. Every single emotion is healthy and every single emotion is temporary. And like with all things that are fleeting, they're valuable. So I had to, you know, I believe that there were some emotions that were bad and some that were good. And coming to this understanding that emotions aren't bad or good or right or wrong, they are. And what they can really be is a way to look at yourself and say, my body is saying, recognize this moment for it is significant. And it is an opportunity for you to gain self-awareness. For this fleeting moment, you can sit in this emotion and learn more about yourself. Don't waste it, don't fight it, don't resist it, don't avoid it, because you're avoiding your full authentic self. If I'm experiencing all these, it is because I am complete. And if I'm willing to sit in them for those brief moments that they happen and say I'm okay with it, I hear it, I can sit, I can breathe, I can learn from it, and then when I'm ready to make a choice that brings me positivity in my life, then I can respond. If I continue to do that over the course of time, I'm going to gain so much self-awareness, understanding this continuous feelings away. I'm never going to understand them. I'm never going to understand myself. So it was, you know, this daily act of recognizing that, yeah, you know, it's great to want to change your life. It's great. It's great to want to be a healthier version of yourself, but it's much more important to love the life that will get you there. And the way to do that is to experience all of it. Don't be ashamed of any of it because it's all human, it's all normal, we're all worthy. Like the hero in everybody's journey is not the person at the end, they are right, because that's the person who's gonna have the courage to take the first step. 
which means that every single person is enough. They have everything they need to change their life because the hero is not the end of the book. It's now. It's the person who says that I'm willing to be incredibly courageous and incredibly scared and still take a step towards changing my life because I know things can be better. Every single person who's ever changed their life has had a moment where they said, I am confident that my life can be better and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to learn how to do that. That's the hero, the person in that moment. And that means every single person can do what I've done or what anyone else has done who's overcome adversity. Because it's not about avoiding parts of yourself and like just grasping a hold of these things that are positive and just trying to only experience those. No, it's accepting everything about you and recognizing that all of you is fine, all of you is worthy, all of you is enough. And say, I'm not going to avoid any of it. Not avoid, like I don't get up every single day and avoid the eggs and dairy and drugs. I get up every single day and I accept the behaviors that bring this incredible amount of beautiful food that, that, that increase my health and have positive effects on me, the way I've moved through the world, the way I think about the world and the world around me. I get out into nature and I reconnect with nature. We're the most disconnected species of animal that's ever been. We wall ourselves away from our home inside concrete and glass. We don't allow our feet to touch the ground for the majority of our lives. And we wonder why by the time we're old enough to have complex thought, we start to feel lost. We've separated ourselves from our home. For me, reconnecting with nature was a huge part of my recovery. To go out into, the, into nature, put my hand on a tree, put my feet in the dirt and just sit there and breathe with nature, listen to her and notice that not only maybe have I been missing her, but maybe she's been missing me too and reconnect with the fact that that's my home. Let nature welcome me home for five minutes a day. It can be so life-changing. Like I urge everybody who's listening to this to spend five minutes a day when you go outside and you're, if you're in nature, don't just stand there with your shoes on. Take your shoes off, put your feet in the dirt, touch a tree, close your eyes and breathe. Nature is not just what we live in, it's part of us. And we have to be connected to it because we are earth connected species. That's what we are. Just like every other animal on this planet, we are, we are simple. And when we disconnect from nature long enough, we will start to feel stress. We'll start to feel anxiety. Connecting with nature is not the only answer, but it's part of it. I'm speechless. I just want to quote every single thing you just said and just the amount of the realization and clarity that you have in that. I think like we should, I don't know, release this and people should listen to it every single day before they leave to work or something. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely an amazing, inspirational being. And thank you so much oh, for sharing you. all your wisdom. That is so cool. Okay. So all right. Cool. I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, no, no. no. Go ahead. <laughs> <Let's> keep going. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you, you go into sober living and then you get diagnosed with like eight conditions that you named that you reverse pretty much all of them from six months to a year. So right. what are, uh, you approach it from the place of abundance rather than scarcity and uh, incorporating new healthful and loving behaviors versus anger and hate and, and kind mm -hmm. of limiting yourself. What are still maybe some of the things that you're having the most challenges with during that time? Um, patience, mm -hmm. for sure. I believe I needed to, like it was one of those things I, I believe I needed to get to 
like the next place of recovery fast enough. Right? And, and so patience became a struggle for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things I decided that I wanted to do was I wanted to discover more about who I was as a person. Right? Because I didn't know what, was, what I was going to do with myself after I left recovery. You know, I, I had been working in an industry I no longer wanted to work in. I didn't know who I was now as this new version of myself. We're well, not new version, but more authentic version of myself. And so I decided I would discover more about myself by doing something completely selfless. And I went with my, I asked my twin brother to join me and we went and lived in an orphanage in Nepal. And um, I decided that I wanted to, to be of service to kids, to children, because they're so innocent and they allow us to see that, that, that authentic nature. Like, there's nothing more authentic than, uh, than like working with kids. Um, and I, I wanted to, I wanted to, I've always wanted to go to Nepal, but I wanted to approach my life from a very minimal standpoint. I wanted to depend on very few things. And so I, we went, we lived at this orphanage. Um, I, I slept on like a wooden board with a mat. Um, and it was the best like four months of my life. It really was, you know, to see the joyous nature of these kids who have known nothing but poverty, yet they will find reasons to smile every single day, allowed me to re-examine what is meaningful in life. And we come from a culture, and this is more of the, you and I talked earlier about Johan Hari. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, our culture, our society is designed to distract us from what is truly meaningful in life. You know, it says when you feel, when you feel down, when you feel sad, you buy this, you order this new thing and then you feel better about yourself rather than connecting to what is truly meaningful. And that's where all these depressions and anxieties stem from. Um, and I got a real lesson in that when I was living in Nepal with these kids because I saw them, their day can light up and they've known nothing but poverty. They, you know, they live in an orphanage. They, a lot of them, like when we would play soccer in the morning, they play barefoot. Um, they, 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 have, they know nothing of like the, the conveniences that you and I would consider that make life easy. Yet they smiled more than I would smile in a day on my best day. And while I was there, I had this like very clear realization that what I wanted to do was I wanted to offer to others who are struggling in recovery or with mental health or whatever, the opportunity to make the same self-discovery that I made. And I wanted to use plant-based nutrition as the vehicle that allowed them to gain that understanding like it was for me. And um, I came back home from Nepal and developed a program to use plant-based nutrition as a way for creating an environment for positive change for those in recovery, right? So if at the end of the day, no matter how rough your day was, no matter what you're still dealing with emotionally or psychologically, if you're eating a plant-based diet, at the end of the day, you will be healthier than you were the day before. And over the course of time, that can allow you to develop self-worth and you know just enough self-worth and recovery will make an individual feel like they're worth saving and that was the goal of it and i ran uh, the program for about two years in a in an iop in santa monica and it went really well um and then i got an offer to come work for whole foods market back in austin texas at their medical and wellness center uh, with Dr. Matt Letterman and Alona Pulde from Forks Over Knives. They were the clinical directors. I did that for a year. It was great. And uh, you mentioned Robbie Barbero earlier, who's on your show. And Robbie and I have been friends ever since I, uh, I did the Rich Roll podcast. Um, he reached out to me 
because uh, he heard my story. And it was funny because at the time I just started Instagram, so I didn't know about the direct message thing. Uh-huh. And apparently he like, <laughs> sent me like 20 direct messages trying to reach me. And someone who knew him like and knew me bumped into me like, dude, there's this guy, Robbie, who's just been trying to get in touch with you forever through Instagram. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, <laughs> messages. I said, that's a direct message on Instagram. I sent messages from him. And I wrote to him and we finally connected. We, we became fast friends. And his uh, co-founder of Mastering Diabetes is a guy named Dr. Cyrus Kambada. Mm-hmm. And while I was a uh, health coach for the Medical Wellness Center, I asked him to come and give a presentation to Whole Foods Market about insulin resistance, how to reverse insulin resistance and cardiovascular disease. And he came in to Austin and he stayed with me. And he, it's funny because, you know, I've been such a fan of his and of Robbie's for so long. I thought, man, what an amazing think it would be if I could work with my friends or like Robbie and Cyrus and help create positive change that way by really work on with people on insulin resistance and, and bringing this plant-based message to everybody and it was so funny because one night we were driving back from we went to go see a comedy show in Austin Cyrus and I were heading back to my place and he goes Adam what's your dream job and I said well, honestly it would be working for a group like Mastering Diabetes and he goes well you can come work with us and <laughs> This is awesome. He goes, he goes, we would love to have you. And uh, so after that, um, the, that was the end of 2017. Um, beginning of 2018, I joined Mastering Diabetes as their food addiction and type 2 diabetes coach. And I've been doing that now for a little over a year. And it's been the best thing ever. That is it's amazing. Incredible. I mean, uh, I've been a speaker for Rip Esselstyn's program for five years now. Um, it's been incredible. Once I, you know, listen to my heart and listen to the the universe and 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 like what what the what what my soul was speaking to me and the universe was speaking to me saying you know just follow this path that speaks to your heart trust it days are going to be really tough some days are going to be really great but if you you listen to your heart if you listen to your heart and you move in an authentic way and you, and you act authentically with what is true to your soul, at the end of the day, people, people will be put in your path that bring you closer to what you want most and opportunities will come into you. Just trust it. And that's true. It's happened. Like, like I'm here to say like 100%. There are days in my, uh, my life that are awful. There are. But that's irrelevant because everyone has bad days. It's not, like I said earlier, it's not about trying to avoid bad days and only have good days. That's impossible. It's about being able to have days that are tough, but still have, like, have the, to be able to sit through those experiences, move through them and know that at the end of the day, I'm going to still continue to move in a path that is in alignment with the type of person that I want to be. And if right now that path is through a really rough patch, I'm just going to keep going. And so that's led me to where I am today. And, and, you know, I, some of the most incredible friends I could have ever imagined, Robbie and Cyrus and Tara and Kylie and all these incredible people like Mel, I don't know if you know, uh, absolutely Mel. Uh, um, I, I follow her on Insta, but I, I don't know her personally. Yeah. I met Robbie uh, and Tara before the uh, Peapot yeah. conference at the beginning of 2018. Yeah. I think it's right when you started working for Master in Diabetes. Yeah, they're yeah. They're amazing. I had them both in the podcast. They're incredible people. And uh, I get to do amazing things. I get to work with these people. I get to be friends with these people. And, and um, you know, my brother, who at the beginning of 2016, 
was 280 pounds and type 2 diabetic, you know, I asked him if he would be willing to come and live with me and just adopt my lifestyle for a few months. I said, listen, Bobby, I know that, I know that we'll reverse the diabetes. I know that. And it's not about that. Like I told him, I said, you know, this is not about who you are as, as a person. This is simply about, I just want to see what can happen if we change the behavior, right? Because who you are as a person, there's nothing wrong with who you are as a person. And he agreed. And uh, he moved into my place January of 2017. And um, within six weeks, his diabetes was, or his blood glucose was completely normal. So he was off his, he was off his medication day one because we met with Dr. Matt Letterman and let, Dr. Matt Letterman asked us what we were going to be doing. I told him, I said, he's going to be eating exactly what I eat. He's going to be doing what I do. And he said, well, then, Bobby, you don't need your diabetes medication anymore. So yeah, that'll quickly become too much for you. And uh, he's lost 100 pounds as of now. And he now is a cinematographer and producer with Sean Munson on his new film. Uh, so Bobby has become an incredible animal rights activist. You know, he goes in with Sean to these slaughterhouses and he films things that I could never have imagined or no one can imagine. Um, and Bobby is such an empathic soul. He has such a connection to non-human animals. But one of the greatest moments, probably the greatest moment I've ever had in my life was after we got back from Nepal and after Bobby had completely, you know, immersed himself in this lifestyle. And he came to me and he said, my brother's very brilliant. Uh, he's a poet. He's, he's, he's a real renaissance man. He's an artist. He's a poet. He's a boxer. He's a filmmaker. He's like, um, <laughs> um, but uh, he said, you know, Adam, Joseph Campbell said that people are not so much looking for the meaning of life as much as they are the experience of being alive. And that's what you've given back to me. And you know what, nothing that I've done in my life has measured up to that moment because that was the moment that I realized that I'd truly become that authentic version of myself that I've been seeking. Because I realized that I was able to give entirely of myself to my brother for the most unselfish of reasons in order for him to make profound gain in his life. I didn't use him at all. Um, I simply offered him myself and through that, he was able to completely take charge and ownership of his life. And so I realized that I had finally become the most authentic version of myself I'd ever been. Um, I don't think, I think that that's a constant quest that we have to constantly be seeking authenticity. But uh, that moment will forever be maybe the greatest moment of my life. Um, and he's so amazing. Beautiful. Yeah, he's an incredible incredible person uh and it's cool because he's friends with all these amazing people like he knows Joaquin Phoenix and Damian Mander and all these unbelievable <laughs> people and he's always just like rubbing shoulders with these like with Moby and, and <laughs> you know he's he's he probably goes to three or four slaughterhouse vigils a week um he volunteers his spare time at animal sanctuaries um, he, he, he willingly goes into slaughterhouses to film what happens in there. And, um, you know, he's, uh, he's an incredible person because, you know, when I think about how my connection to non-human animals and how much I care for them, it pales in comparison to his. And yet he does this willingly for the betterment of them. And, you know, it's so, it's so rough because I know that what I do when I work with people to better their lives, if I offer them the solution and they deny it, that's on them, right? But these animals, they're stuck in a system where even when we know what's right to do, 
we can't help them because the system is broken against them. It's keeping them in prison. And, you know, my, my, people ask my brother constantly, like, why do you go to these vigils? And the vigils he goes to are love, they're love-based uh, vigils. They're not there to protest the uh, slaughterhouse. They're there uh, to give love and compassion as the last act and on, probably only act of kindness these animals will ever experience before they die. So they give water, kindness, touch, love to these pigs as they're pulled up to the slaughterhouse before they die so that at least before they die, they will know one act of kindness from human beings. Um, and uh, it's there to bear witness so that these animals, someone knows that they existed and knew that they were sentient loving creatures. And um, people will come up to him who get angry about it and they'll go, well, you know, why do you do this? It's not gonna change anything. You know, you doing this is not gonna stop the next truck. And his response is like, he just can't argue with it. He, he goes, right do it's like you can't argue it's like even if even if all of his efforts will never make a single other person go vegan or stop eating meat or whatever he will never stop doing it because it is always the right thing to do it's not about changing the world it's about doing the right thing and hopefully doing the right thing will change the world but at the end of the day it's not about the people it's about these animals and giving a loving act of compassion to these animals before they die is always the right thing to do. So it doesn't matter to him. He's going to do it, whether people change or not. I just love that argument. You know, there's, there's no argument for it. It's like you can disagree, but it is the right thing to do. So he's, he's incredible. I, I, first of all, I don't think I've ever cried so much <laughs> while recording the podcast. <laughs> Oh God! But I think, like, secondly, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm so sorry for both for for you and for your brother to have had experienced the level of pain and darkness that you had to experience. But at the same time, I, I selfishly am grateful for it because I think that that through that pain that you were able to allow as much light as you did into your heart into your soul and to speak with as much passion as you do today and to make as much yeah. impact as you do today because i mean just just hearing your words and and the amount of love and clarity and power and strength that that's in them i don't think a person can just pass by and like shrug a shoulder on that and i think the more the more the more we do acknowledge the negative feelings and the hurtful feelings and with the more we allow ourselves to feel the darkness and to feel the pain the more it opens us opens our heart to feel in the pain of other animals both human and unhuman and that's that's how we make the world a better place is through starting and not to only feel that, pain. it opens you up to feeling the love and joy of other animals non-human animals on this planet. oh yeah like if you connect to every emotion of another creature like even the sad, if you allow yourself to see that other animals do hurt, you also open yourself up to the other end of the spectrum. Like when I see a pig, like running around a sanctuary, my heart like bursts with joy. <laughs> because I know that that animal is capable of experiencing the antithesis of that feeling. So I know that when that animal feels joy, it feels joy exactly as I do. That there's no separation between the way I feel joy and this animal feels joy. It feels joy because it feels sadness. And so when it feels joy, it appreciates it. 
-hmm. Like that understanding comes from connecting to the fact that these animals are emotionally intelligent. They experience the full spectrum of emotions in the way that we do. And that's what's that's one of the things that's so beautiful about the experience of being a living creature on this planet is that there is no separation between myself and the other species of animals on this planet, right? I know that for many animals on this planet, when I look them in the eye, I can not only see myself in them, but there's a very strong possibility that they see themselves in me. And that's one of the most incredibly unique gifts of living on this earth is that I can have that moment with a species that's not my own. And as Sean puts it in his film, know that we are not the same, but we are equal. Hmm. And for that brief, brief moment in time, share, you know, share a glance, share an emotion. And that, you know, at the end of the day, that's what, that's what living is about for me is just connecting self-love and self-compassion to myself and giving that to others. And that is not, there's not something that is exclusive to humans. Like, I mean, people see it every single day in the way that you ask somebody if they would part with their dog for a thousand dollars, they won't, they won't do that. Of course they won't, but it's just the system that's in place that, that helps people to believe that a dog is our friend and a pig is our food. But once that, once that barrier is broken, it just opens up this whole level of compassion and connecting to the natural world. It, it, once you experience it, you don't ever want to stop experiencing it. And um, that's not reserved to just, it's not about being vegan. You know, it, it, it's about being compassionate. And if you operate from a state of compassion, you will inherently reach a point where you no longer want to harm other living things. You're blowing my mind away. Okay, so um, I want to talk a little bit more about addiction and maybe about different kinds of addiction. So I think sure. addiction such as, you know, drug addiction or maybe alcohol addiction is becoming more accepted and maybe a little bit more understood. But then there's so many other different kinds of addiction. And specifically, I want to uh, expand a little bit more on addiction to food. Um, sure. Because it seems like, okay, well, if you're an alcoholic it's clear you just stop drinking and then you're sober if you're a drug addict you stop using drugs and then you're sober but you can't sure. stop eating because it's food yeah. so how do you how do you go how do you define that how do you talk about that well by making the distinction that sobriety is not the answer to addiction sobriety is just the absence of substance use hmm. right so we have to stop believing that it's the substance that is the problem and that's, in my opinion, that's not it. I don't think that people, substances are the issue. I think that we have to look at the reason why substances become a, uh, an issue in the first place. What is the disconnection that exists in our lives that we have this void that we need to fill with anything that gives us pleasure, right? Like Johan Hari, who I mentioned before, who wrote a beautiful book called Lost Connections about the truth behind depression and uh, and mental health, as well as gave this beautiful TED talk called Everything We Know About Addiction is Wrong. Um, and he talks about humans and their needs to bond. And we have, we create these incredibly passionate bonds with people and purpose and the goings on of the world around us. And that's what humans do. We do this very, really, really well. We have a, a strong need for these bonds. They give us, they give us um, fuel for our, our lives. 
And when those bonds, those healthy bonds are severed, we'll bond with anything because pleasure, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's gambling, whether it's drugs. And that, that bond to those things can be incredibly powerful. And that disconnection from the authentic self is what I believe is addiction. And when we talk about substance use and not being able to stop using, we're talking about both the, the, the addiction and we're also talking about dependency and those are separate, right? Like for example, if I were to take, ask you to use heroin, a certain amount of heroin for a long enough period of time, your body will develop a dependency to it. And if I stopped you from using it, you would go through withdrawals, which would be very uncomfortable for you, and you would beg me to let you use heroin again to stop the pain. That's not the addiction talking, that's the dependency talking. Hmm. Now, if you were to be living a life where, for whatever reason, you became so disconnected from the healthy bonds of your life that you filled it with heroin, you would never want to stop it regardless. That's addiction. And I think that when we view that, we have to look at the societal issues that breed that disconnection. And that's, that's part of the answer to substance abuse, in my opinion, right? So what is it that, like, I didn't start using drugs because I thought my life would get better, you know? Um, and I certainly didn't want to, I certainly didn't keep using them because I didn't know they were killing me. Of course I did. I knew they were killing me, 100%. But they were the only thing that gave me any sense of ease, in my life because I've become so disconnected from the world around me that would give me any sense of authentic purpose or connection. And that's why drugs became so important to me. I stopped using them. I created a pathway to reconnect with myself and with the goings on and the greater purpose around me. And I don't wake up and avoid drugs. I don't get up and go, all right, well, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get through the day without using drugs. It's just not even a thought in my mind. I just do not want to use. Now, if for whatever reason, all these incredible bonds and uh, connections that I have now were to become severed again, I couldn't be confident I would say the same thing. But it's not because Adderall itself is so inherently addictive that that is what creates the disconnection but rather we have, a, we have a system in place that says this person is an addict and there's that, there's that stigma around someone who's an addict and then we separate society from addicts, right? You look at the way we, we treat addicts. We separate them from society. We put them with other addicts. We make them identify as addicts. You say once an addict, always an addict and therefore that's who you believe you are. I, I never was an addict. I was a person who struggled with addiction. I don't define myself by what I struggle with. Mm. The same way as with, I was never a, you could say, you know, you can agree with me or not, but I was never a diabetic. I had diabetes, right? I don't define myself. It's not who I am. It's not what I am. And once we can allow that, I think that that's a big part of the problem. One of the things they tried to teach me when I got into recovery was once an addict, always an addict excuse me, I'm not an addict right now. I, I'm struggling very hard with addiction. It's, it's, over, it's, it's very overwhelming. It's very overpowering. It's taking, charge, it's taking control of my authentic self. And I'm going to die as a result of it. But it's not who I am. I will never define myself by that. I think that that's part of the solution. 
is that we have to let people know that what we struggle with is not who we are. The, the self is so much more complex than that. But it's, there's, like I said, there's no, one, there's no one problem, there's no one cause to the, 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 the epidemic that we have with addiction right now. And there's no one solution. There's a lot, it's a, it's a complex thing, it's community. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it is nutrition. It is the environment in which we choose to live in. It is reconnecting with a purpose. All of these things are important. Um, the way that we talk to ourselves is really important. We're taught to, to look for the things that are wrong with ourselves and try and get rid of it. I don't think that's healthy. I, I would say, why don't we look for the things that we want most in ourselves and try to get more of that? Mm. Try to bring more of that into our lives. If you continue to do that, there's not going to be a lot of room left for behavior during the day that's negative or destructive. You know, I don't like to use the term negative. Um, but uh, that's just, you know, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. I, I just know that for a person, this is the way I view it. So, that it is the substances, it is these chemical hooks in the heroin that create the addiction. If that were true, every single person who went into the hospital and got put on morphine would come out an addict. It not really happen, does it? Not everybody. Maybe because those people have bonds and connections that are strong enough to keep them wanting to continue using it. These are questions, you know, I'm not saying that I'm right, but like I said before, I don't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> Um, not that it's a simple question, but what are your views on the current uh, opioid crisis and the, the approach? It's awful. It's awful. The opioid epidemic is terrible. I mean, right now, we mentioned earlier that uh, the statistic that was released that now the Americans are now more likely to die of an opioid overdose than they are in a car accident. And that's scary. Um, I, I think that uh, we have... I think that we have a system that has over-medicated people with, with painkillers. That's, that's true. Um, we have a system, if you, if you believe in the work of uh, Gabor Mate and Johan Hari, we have a system that makes recovery, uh, that is designed to make the, system, the, the problem of addiction worse, right? That we have a system that, we have a country that created a war on drugs, but really what it's done is created a war on drug users. Because... If you criminalize the substance, then you criminalize the user, and that makes addicts criminals, which means that if you're, if you're addicted to a substance for reasons that you couldn't control and you're busted for it, you're then a criminal, which means you're no longer part of the private sector. You're no longer welcome in society. And what happens when you're disconnected from society and from the goings on world around you? You're gonna fill that void with the only thing you know how to, to do, with the only way you know how, which is what? Substances, which then further makes you a criminal, which further separates you from society. Um, we look at what Johan Hari talked about with, this, with Portugal. Portugal was the first country in 2001 to decriminalize every substance from cannabis to crack. And the purpose of this was they said that we're going to take the money that we use, separating people from society and putting them into prisons, giving them criminal records. And instead, we're going to decriminalize all these substances and those who are using, we will use those resources to get them into treatment and then say, say an individual is a mechanic, uh, we will create programs that say, if you have an auto, like you're a mechanic in this auto body shop, if you employ this person, we'll pay half their wages for a year, which means that they are now empowering individuals to reconnect into society, 
to have a purpose every single day, to do what it is that makes them feel good, to get up and have, you know, use their skill set, uh, to create bonds and connections with the community and, and, and the people around them. And, you know, when you look at the results of it after 10 years, <laughs> the results speak for themselves. The system worked. I mean, overdoses were down significantly. Uh, um, uh, was it HIV was down significantly. Needle, drug use uh, of, all, of all types was down significantly. And, you know, now they don't have all these people with criminal records going around who can't work in the private sector. You have people who are finding recovery and then getting a purpose and being a part of, of the goings on in the world around them. I think that's part of the solution. Um, he talks about the study that was done in Canada on Rat Park. So like the traditional model of experimenting with addiction is you put a rat in a cage and you give them an, op an option of food or drugs. And uh, the rat will inherently, once it tries the drugs, will inherently do the drugs over and over and over again until it dies. Right, so there you go, that's the model of addiction. Is it though? Because that's, People don't live with just those options. So this Canadian researcher developed Rat Park, which was like this, you know, park for rats, where they had <laughs> loads of other rats, they had loads of other things to do. They had all these, you know, toys to play with. They could have loads of sex. They could have loads of food. And they could do cocaine. And what they discovered in Rat Park was that almost none of the rats use cocaine. The ones that did almost never use it compulsively. And then what they found is that when you're connected to your authentic self, and this is my opinion of the observation, that the substance use is no longer necessary to experience the pleasure of being alive. So I think that that's, these aren't, like I said, I don't have an answer. Um, I just have observations based on my own recovery and from the research I've read from incredible people like Dr. Gabor Mate from Vancouver and Johan Hari, who's this incredible journalist from Europe. Um, I would encourage people who maybe know someone in recovery or who's struggling to listen to what these people have to say. Because one of the things I really admire most about Johan Hari was he says that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And that if you know somebody who's struggling with, uh, with addiction, you know, what I, he said what he would want to do, and I agree with him, what I want to do is if I know a loved one who's struggling, I want to go to them and say, I love you whether you're using or you're not. And I'll sit with you. And if ever you need help, I will help you. You don't have to agree and you don't have to condone their behavior, but the person has to know if they want help, they'll be welcomed back into the family and into their, to the, people, to the lives of the people that matter most to them. And if you can remind them of that, they may have the strength to ask for help. You're amazing. Okay. <laughs> Another, um, so another thing I want to extend on a little more, uh, I really, uh, in, I really liked your post on Super Bowl um, when you were, I think you were fasting, you said, right? And you were speaking how Super Bowl is yeah. one of those days where we eat like what, 8 billion tons of food or something. And I think it also goes back to your point about we are, we're creating a system that promotes addiction. So we, we live in this culture of food here in the United States, especially that like glorifies that all of the celebrations Excess. or all of the events have to be about food. And so I'm from Ukraine originally, and I came, I moved to States when I was 18. And uh, uh, in Ukraine, I didn't really have a whole lot of interest, nor did I really have the money to like spend on food or, or dinners or out. It wasn't like the, yeah. your top priority list. So like when I came here and every, everything was about the food, I just thought it was like 
peculiar, I guess, that like everything had to be about like going out for dinner. But like, I didn't think about that until I, uh, I saw your post about Super Bowl because I kind of got used to the fact, I mean, I just, I mean, it's now it seems like normal because I've been in the country for like 12, 11 years now. Yeah. So, but talk, talk more about that. So, okay. So, you know, one of the things I've decided was that, you know, I've always had an issue with this. Everything that we celebrate, everything that we do is not worth doing unless we're eating to excess. And I don't mean everything, but a lot of the things that we do in this country, in this culture, in Western culture, like, for example, the act of being with friends and watching a sporting event isn't fun enough unless we're stuffing our faces with chicken wings or pizza or whatever, eating to excess. And that just, I mean, I know that I'm biased because I live with these kids in, in Nepal who, if they were to just, if you were to explain to them that just to watch a soccer game, they eat more food in one day than most of these kids will eat in a week, it would, they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't be able to understand it. And so for me, it's angering to think that we have been so disconnected that the act of being with people that you like, that you enjoy, that you love, and watching an entertaining event is not enough for us anymore. And that rubbed me the wrong way. Because now the emphasis of these events is not being with people. It's the food and it's all these substances that we have to have around us. That's what the emphasis has become. And that just creates more of a system and a culture of disconnection for what is truly meaningful, the people in your life. And so I wanted to have an experiment where I said, you know, let's do a no food but still fun Super Bowl challenge where I challenge anybody who is healthy enough to join in with me on doing a 24-hour fast during the Super Bowl and enjoy being with people and enjoy the act of being with them and enjoying the sporting event and recognize that not only is it enjoyable, but that's what's most enjoyable about it. That's what's most meaningful about it, right? And, you know, I made sure to put in the post, if you're on, you know, if you're not healthy enough, please don't do this. If you have a medical condition, please don't join in. Um, if you would like to still make a statement, please do so by, you know, eating a plant-based foods and eating responsibly. That's enough to make a statement. But I really just wanted people to give themselves the opportunity. It's one day. And what's so funny is that <laughs> I got so many comments from people saying that my idea was extreme. Yet the idea... The idea that on Super Bowl Sunday, we would consume, Americans would consume 1.88, uh, I think it's 1.8 or 1.3 billion chicken wings in one afternoon. That was not extreme. That's just the chicken wings. That's not the beer and the french fries and the pizza and the burgers and all that other stuff. That's, that means that 600 million chickens needed to die for the sake of a Super Bowl game. For the sake of a Super Bowl game to be fun enough to watch. And that is not extreme, but me asking people to not eat for 24 hours was extreme. That bothers me. That bothers me that that's the response. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say, like I say, I'm not trying to say that people are wrong in their belief. I think that people are just disconnected. They don't recognize it. I wanted to create an opportunity for that awareness to be offered to them. You know, it's like, listen, if you're healthy and you don't have any medical conditions, if you don't eat for 24 hours, you're going to be fine. You'll be In more fact, you're going to be better. Probably. <laughs> you'll, be, 
fine. <laughs> I'm not promoting an eating disorder. I got a lot of comments about that. Um, it wasn't my intention to do that. And I'm sorry if you took it that way, but that's not my, I mean, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to say that food is evil. Yeah. I don't think food is evil. I love food. I'm talking about this need for excess and this blind disconnection to what is truly meaningful. That's what I wanted to bring awareness to. No, I really appreciate it. I think it was amazing, a great idea. But I also think that, I mean, our perceptions of what is extreme nowadays is so skewed. I mean, it's so, so out of crazy. proportion. It's like what yeah. Dr. Ornish said, you know, like the, we think that cutting open the chest and, you know, replacing your heart or like cutting out this yeah. arteries and place, place in different places, like it's fine. But then going to a plant-based food, whole food yeah. diet is extreme. Like how is I that? that was Dr. I think that was Dr. Esselstyn who said oh, that's that. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, but I remember like I came into the, in, in, in contact with that like on first basis because when I started working um, at a hospital uh, two and a half years ago now, uh, I, was, I started as a project manager in surgery. So as part of my training, I got to watch some heart surgeries and I got to watch the, the cabbage, what they call, where they replace part of the artery yeah. from your thigh and like put it in your, I mean, and it's like, it's incredible to like, to see people getting like so in the middle like and open that i mean it's like and you you look at this like bag of bones and and muscle and blood and you're like this thing is going to wake up and have a conscious presence afterwards like it's unbelievable that we do to our bodies and like that is not extreme but again you know going 24 hours without food that which our predecessors used to do like on constant basis or or adopting a plant-based diet seems extreme yeah I mean, you know, one of the things that I do regularly is do a 24-hour fast once a week. And I do this because I know that I am in an incredibly fortunate situation. I live in a culture and I, and I have a financial situation where at any time of the day, I can go and get whatever I need in terms of food if ever I want it. I, can, I have the choice of choosing between foods that only create health and wellness I also have the choice of foods that will create disease, but I have the choice of choosing what I want to put in my body when I want to do it in terms of food. That is a gift. That is a gift that is not available to most human beings on the planet. And so every, 20, every week for 24 hours, I remove that from my life so that I can appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not doing it for weight loss reasons. I, you know, it's not about that. It's, it's simply about, it's like if you don't let's take time to appreciate what is meaningful. You will take it for granted. And that's why to this day, you know, this couch is pretty much the only thing I have in this apartment. <laughs> I got this and a bed. And my, brother, my brother came to see me when I moved into this place in Austin. My brother came to visit me and he goes, this is going to look great when you move in. <laughs> it's like, you know, if I don't actually need it, then I don't want it. Right? Because I, what, the things that I want, the things that I need are the things that I want. And I don't want things that I don't need to become things that I want because then I lose track of what's meaningful. For me, this is, I'm speaking for me, I'm not making this recommendation to others. Maybe consider what I'm saying, but I'm not saying that this is what everybody needs to do. It would be amazing if they did. But um, it's just, you know, I, I realized that, that my life got into trouble when I focused only on what I wanted. And my life got a lot better when I focused on what I needed. And so I try to incorporate that into every aspect of my life. And that includes my possessions. If I don't need it, I more than likely don't own it. 
and um, and that makes me focus on things that are meaningful. Like I don't have a lot to do in my apartment, but I talk to my parents a lot. I talk to my sister a lot. I talk to my brother a lot because that means a lot to me. Um, I don't have you know I don't have a video game console because I don't need that, and I'd rather spend that time with friends or creating positive change in the world because that means a lot to me. Um, there are some things that I have to own. I own this laptop. I have to work. I do have internet because I have Thank to Thank you for owning the laptop so I can interrogate you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm completely removed from culture. I still watch Netflix. I mean, I do have some things, but you know what? For the most part, I focus on what I need, not what I want. And that has allowed me, like speaking for me, to realize that there are some things that I have taken uh, far too much for granted. And one of those things is my access to food. I saw when I lived with Nepal, when I lived in Nepal, that most of these people, they don't have an option as to what they get to eat. And what a gift that is for people in Western culture to say that if I choose to be healthy, I have an option of the most incredible abundance of health giving, of life and health giving foods on the planet at any time. And it's taken for granted way too much. I mean, the fact that we have the chronic disease epidemic that we have right now speaks to that. The fact is that if we wanted to, we could eradicate chronic disease in Western culture. People could experience the most incredible health they've ever known in their entire life if they wanted to. If they knew the answer and they wanted to, it was, it's there for them. That is really rare. And I think if more people appreciated that, they might consider the idea a little bit more of adopting more of a plant-based diet. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm on the same page with you. I think there's something so liberating about owning less things. Because if you think about it, so much anxiety comes from you know, owning things and then maintaining things and then breaking things. And then the next update is out. And then when, yeah. you know, when I'm going to get that next thing, or now I need to get the thing that matches better with the previous thing I got. And there's like so much <laughs> consumerism that, that that's around that. But then having less just provides, I feel like it creates all this space, both in your mind and in your immediate space, in, in immediate surrounding, you know, and it's I just, love walking into my apartment and seeing nothing and going, ah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay so now let's bring it to like day to day for you i'm sure people sure. are curious to know what it is that you eat or what kind of exercise that you do to maintain your health i mean first of all i think just give we have to give shout outs to our amazing bodies that are able to recover from something oh, like yeah. like take yourself like the things that you put your body through what 300 milligrams versus five to 40 milligrams a day and you maintain it for 400, what? 450 milligrams oh my god and you maintain it for what like four, four five years and then yeah, you lost yeah, 200 unreal. pounds overcame heart disease diabetes erectile dysfunction depression suicidal thoughts and now like you're you're back to your authentic handsome looking self you're running marathons too now right <laughs> yeah yeah, and like, how does it happen? Like, what, what do you do? What's your secret on a daily basis? Well, it's not a secret. You know, I, I get up every single day. And the thing is, is that, you know, like I mentioned before, I really did fall in love with this stuff. I mean, I get up every single morning at 4.30 a.m. Because 5 a.m. is too long to wait for oatmeal. Like, I'm just <laughs> not going to wait that long. So I get up at 4.30 a.m., sometimes 4, and I make a gigantic bowl 
of oatmeal with cinnamon and turmeric and a side of fruit. And I love it. And I, I mean, I love it because I remember, you know, when I started this transition, um, like I'm lousy in the, in the kitchen. I'm a lousy cook, right? So I knew that if I tried to make recipes, I would get frustrated, resentful, and fail. But if I just connected to the foods that I love the most and, and, and kept it simple, I, thought, I, I recognize that recipes aren't food. They're made of food. And so if I fall in love with these foods, then that's the key. So I, I still eat that way to this day. Um, breakfast is oats and fruit. Snacking is all day fruit, like just all day fruit. Mangoes and jackfruit and bananas. And I got into the tropical stuff after becoming friends with Robbie. It's really <laughs> it's hard not kind, to. Of end, kind, of end, kind of end up having to. Like I never <laughs> even heard of a sapote until I met Robbie. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Um, for, for lunch, I'll eat, you know, sweet potatoes on my, some of my favorite foods on the planet. I mean, if all I had to eat for the rest of my life was sweet potatoes, I'd be a very happy person. Uh, so I bake sweet potatoes. Sometimes I, throw, I chop some sweet potatoes up, throw them in my air fryer. I have air fried sweet potatoes, um, some cauliflower, some greens, uh, more fruit for snacking between lunch and dinner. And then uh, dinner is sometimes, you know, like a lentil and cauliflower bowl with some spinach and onion powder and garlic powder and curry powder and things like that to spice it up but that's it's really simple like that um I'll, I'll snack on frozen fruit for dessert like frozen banana and mango and blueberry all blended together you know the nice cream so delicious and the thing is that you know I, I don't ever have to deprive myself of how much i eat i eat till i'm full and i don't worry about it you know it's not like you know i've never once weighed my food or calorie counted and you know, if I want to gain weight, I'll just eat more. If, you know, like a few years ago, I was really into CrossFit. I did a lot of like circuit training stuff and I probably weighed 25, 25 pounds heavier than I do now. And I had a lot more muscle in my body and I fed myself more calories to be able to perform more in CrossFit. Now I do a lot more running for meditation. So I do a lot more long distance trail running because that's how I meditate. I meditate when I'm in purposeful movement. You know, mm. like when I'm trail running, I can find moments of where I'm simply place, step and breath. And those are my, that's meditation for me. And so um, I've, you know, I just, you know, it's not like I was running to lose weight, but I've leaned down for a distance running and I, and I eat when I feel hungry and I don't when I'm not. But I keep it very, very simple. I mean, most people, there's a, there's a video that I did with Rip Esselstyn where he asked me to make every meal that I make in a day and the video lasted 10 minutes. Yes, <laughs> it, was just, it was so easy to do. Um, and he's here, here at my apartment, and we made and ate all the meals I eat in a day. And it is, it's, it's just that simple because I've, I've literally, I've fallen so in love with the foods themselves that just the foods themselves on a plate make me very excited. Um, I, I try to run as much as I can because, like I said, running is an act of meditation for me trail running more so than road running because again i like to connect with nature um, i like to run through nature i think there, there's something really like authentic about an animal moving in nature mm -hmm. and that's what we are so i love to run through nature i love to do interesting parts of nature i haven't seen before i like to you know welcome myself home at least walk, run through nature put my hand when, there's a great story when my um so when I was born, when I left the hospital, my grandmother on my mother's side, who has always had a, a, a 
a green thumb. She had these incredible flowers and gardens. She loved birds. She loved animals. Um, my mom says that she took me and she brought me to a tree and she put my hand on a leaf and she said that she introduced me to nature and said that be a friend to nature and nature will always be a friend to you. And so anywhere I go somewhere, my grandmother's no longer with me. But for the longest time, anywhere I would go somewhere, first thing I would do is I would walk over to a tree and I'd put my hand on a leaf as a way of introducing myself to the environment. And now it's not just that, it's a way of reconnecting with my grandmother. Um, you know, I'll see a cardinal, which was her favorite bird, and we have cardinals here. And I'll run through the trails in Austin, I'll see one, and I'll just say, hi, Mamma, and I'll put my hand on the leaf. And it's, it's special to me. That's part of, you know, nature offers me that. You know, nature offers me a way to connect with someone who's no longer here. You know, what a gift that is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's about, again, what is meaningful? And so I've made running meaningful to me. I can connect with someone who's no longer here anymore just by simply touching a leaf. That I can't do by touching a television or, you know, a video game or um, buying new shoes. But I can do that by simply putting my hand on a leaf. And that's, that's amazing. That's beautiful. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the projects that you're, you're working on right now. So I know you're doing uh, wellness health coaching, wellness coaching with mindful diabetes, right? Yes. And, yes. With mastering diabetes. Mastering um, diabetes. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a diabetes and food addiction coach. Um, I founded a nonprofit um, called Plant Based for Positive Change, and we are currently going to be doing a research study. I, I can't really talk about what it's about, um, but as soon as we do start the study, I will come back on your show and we can talk about Please, it. Please, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's going to be groundbreaking. We're really excited about it. Tara Kemp is involved in the study as well. Um, and uh, yeah, really, this is really something that I'm going to be very proud of. So that's really cool. Um, I also work with Whole Foods Market's Total Health Immersion Program, mm-hmm. where I promote and support the plant-based retreats, like the one that I went to when I was, you know, really sick. Um, so we do four a year. We do Engine Two with Rip. Uh, we do Dr. Firm, Dr. McDougal, and Dr. Stoll. So we do four immersions a year, and Whole Foods Market sends um, about 400 employees a year to these retreats. So about about a hundred each. It's a little less than that, but um, these are for team members who uh, either apply or can medically qualify. And it's a no expense to the to the uh, Whole Foods Market employee, the team member. Whole Foods Market pays for all of it, and this is for them to learn how to take charge of their health and their well-being. We've been doing this since 2009. Whole Foods Market has sent about 5,000 employees to these programs and spent about 16 million dollars doing it. Wow. Um, yeah, so uh, that's what I call investing in health in your employee healthcare. Um, that is incredible because that's actually investing in healthcare. We do have, you know, we are a privately insured healthcare plan, so we do offer health insurance. Health insurance is sick care, right. and Whole Foods Market says we're not just going to give people health insurance. We're going to empower them with the tools to never be dependent upon it. And uh, I feel really, you know, I feel really proud to be uh, working for a company that does that for people that not in just not not in in, in the fact that we're just uh you know helping people regain their lives but we're also helping people see that eating meat is dairy and eggs is not the way to go yeah unfortunately hopefully the market does still sell meat eggs and dairy but believe me you know know i've known john Matthew my entire life and he would love the fact if the uh, customers of hopefully the market stopped buying it we would stop selling it Problem is that people say, you know, if you're vegan, why don't you stop 
selling meat, eggs, and dairy at your stores. Well, then we'd have to close over half the stores and half the employees would lose their jobs. That's just not gonna happen. So believe me, Whole Foods Market would love to stop selling meat, eggs, and dairy. Just stop buying the stuff. <laughs> so like, just like John, he doesn't buy it. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, well, I, I already taken a little over an hour and a half of your time, but I was oh, talking no to you. I've loved, loved every minute of it. <laughs> Uh, there's, a, um, there's a question that I usually close with, but uh, I want to see if there's anything else that you want to talk about or share with listeners before we start closing up. Maybe if you could provide some, some, some tips or maybe some hope and, and light for somebody who's listening and can relate to maybe is at the point uh, where you were eight years mm -hmm. ago um, with having a lot of hate and, and shame about their behavior, maybe overweight or at the point of disease or depression, where, where do they start? Well, if you're struggling with depression or, you know, uh, substance abuse or anything like that, the place to start is to talk to a professional 100%. That is, that is definitely, you know, you should definitely be talking to a professional. You should also, you know, I think that it's important to, to, to recognize that it's irrelevant to worry about changing their entire life, right? You know, I remember when I got started, um, I told myself that I, you know, I'm not planning on being my base for the rest of my life. I more than likely will be, but I don't care to, to plan the rest of my life. I also, you know, have no intention of trying to plan to be sober for the rest of my life. I more than likely will be, but I'm not planning that. What I'm going to do is I can take what I can see and what I can plan for. So just take seven days say, here's what I'm going to do for seven days. I'm going to, in my case, I said I'm going to eat a plant-based diet. I'm going to eat the foods that I like, that, I, bring, that I, I find joy in eating. I'm going to do the kind of movement that I find joy in doing. And I'm going to use the recovery methods that I find joy in doing. I'm going to do them for seven days. And what works, I'm going to keep. What doesn't work, I'll change to something else that's still in alignment with those modalities. And if there's something that did work, but I didn't find joy in doing it, I'm going to try and find a way of doing it that does bring you joy. And then I'm going to go another seven days. But I could look at the entire six years of my recovery as nothing more than a series of seven-day experiments. You know, it's, the rest of your life is, is, is a commitment that you can't even conceptualize. The seven days is an experiment you can plan for. So just do that. Don't, if you, if you do the, the great thing about these seven day model is that it, fo it, it forces you to focus on connecting to behavior because the, the overall results won't happen in seven days, but the behaviors that bring the results, you can make those changes. And like I said before, if, if, if you continue to focus on the behaviors that bring change, the results take care of themselves. So don't put so much pressure on yourself. If you're struggling with substance abuse, talk to a professional, you know, consider seeking treatment. Don't worry about the rest of your life. Look at, think of it like running a race. It's not only can I not see the finish line, I don't ever need to see it to get there. The only thing I can do and the only thing I have to do is focus on the road in front of me that I can see, my pace, my step, and my breath. If I continue on doing that, I'll reach any finish line, any race I'm trying to get to. The same thing can be done with recovery or with lifestyle change or life in general. It's irrelevant to worry about when you will get sober or how long you will stay sober. If you focus on the behaviors that bring positive change and recovery into your life, you will be sober at the end of the day. That's all you got to worry about.
So just that's, you know, there's nothing about me that's special. What I've done, anybody can do. Get up and find a reason to want to do it. Uh, if you can connect with a reason for wanting to do it, that it's about love rather than fear or hate. I think that that's more beneficial. And, you know, like I say, the only reason why I've been able to do this for over six years is because I get up every single day and I want to. That's the secret. And that's why anybody else, anybody can do this. So. It must be the oatmeal that motivates you to wake up at four. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the oat, it's the oatmeal. That's the secret. It's the oatmeal. <laughs> And talk again a little bit more about how uh, plant-based diet specifically can be an important building block for, for aiding any kind of recovery. Yeah, so um, you know, we know that uh, a plant-based diet has been proven to improve mood states across the board um, through the reduction of a specific uh, long-chain um, negligent fatty acid called the rachidonic acid that causes this neuroinflammation, a swelling of the brain that increases stress, anxiety, and depression, all these symptoms. Uh, so there are studies about this, that just the increased intake of fruit has shown to treat depression and depressive states and things like this. So uh, we know that it reduces inflammation across the board and infl inflammation is directly linked to uh, symptoms of depression, stress, and anxiety. Um, I think that there is something about a plant-based diet that allows you to connect to a greater purpose in life, to know that the impact that you have on your plate is in no way harming the planet, in no way harming another living creature, and is only creating positive change. I think that there is something inherent in that in, in regards to uh, recovery of the self and of, you know, uh, of your well-being. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, when and I was just talking to a friend about this earlier, but I know this sounds kind of like, you know, hippie dippy talk or whatever, but you know, when you put your hand on a piece of meat, it's dead. There's no energy in it. There's no life in it. When you put your hand on the earth and you put your hand on a tree, it's alive. There's an energy that is exchanged with you. These living foods, these plants have an energy. There's a life force, there's an energy that is being emitted from these plants. And that is important. I, for, you know, I know it's not, you know, I don't know if it, what the benefits are of, for it, but I know that there's nothing living or there's no energy that's being transferred in your body. There's no energy connection to it. And I think that there's a benefit to eating living food. Um, and uh, some people will say, you know, <laughs> are you then killing it by eating it? And, and I think there's a really easy answer to that. When I eat the fruit, I don't kill the tree. Hmm. Yeah. So. Okay. Anything else that we should discuss before my last final question? Uh, no. Uh, you can come hear me and meet me in person at Plant Stock this year. I'll be speaking at Plant Stock in August. Go to Engine2.com events. Go to the events and go to come see me at Plant Stock. Cyrus and Robbie will be at Plant Stock. Um, also some amazing Dean and Aisha Sherzai, the authors of the Alzheimer's solution. I love them. Um, they're amazing. Uh, Rip and Dr. Esselstyn, of course, will be there and Jane and Anne. And then, uh, I believe, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Robin Shutkan, who wrote the microbiome solution. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, Anthony Lim. Um, uh, I believe Dan Buettner is coming. who wrote the blue zones. Uh, John Mackey is going to be speaking. Uh, Josh Lajani, I believe, is going to be there. Uh, so it's going to be an incredible event. Mel, 
uh, absolutely Mel will be giving a presentation on creating beautiful fruit platters. Oh, she um, will. It's going to be amazing. And so come meet me and all of us because it's not, there's no red tape. Like you spend the whole weekend with us. It's pretty incredible. That's awesome. I'll make sure to include the link in the show notes so people can easily access it. Are you going to ACLM this year? I'm definitely going to try to. I made a promise to Danielle Gallardo that I would try and meet her in person this year. <laughs> so plus I want to be there with, for mastering diabetes. I know that I'm planning on going to the PC, um, the PBNHC conference this year, um, the Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference, mm-hmm. um, which is also the Plantrition Project. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of it. Dr. Stoll's thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really want to go to the ACLM. There's a lot of people there who I'm friends with, like really good friends with on social media, like Danielle Gallardo, and we have not yet met in person. And then some of my other, you know, friends who I, like Michelle McMacken and Mm -hmm. Robert Oswald and all these people who who we have met before, but I just like, every time we're together, it's just so wonderful to be with them. So I, I really want to go. Yeah, I, I want to try to go to next year, this year. Uh, I've gone to the plant-based nutrition, plant-based prevention of disease, the PPOT conferences a few years in a row. But uh, this year it falls on the weekend of my uh, master's onboarding for the summer semester, so I can't go. But, and I need my plant-based conference fix in the year. <laughs> <laughs> you can also um, have some, we're, Mastering Diabetes is hosting our, our, our Costa Rica retreat again this year. So if you go to masteringdiabetes.org and go to the retreats, we host a four-day retreat in Costa Rica with the entire Mastering Diabetes team where we help you reverse insulin resistance through a plant-based lifestyle. And it's in Costa Rica, in Guanacosta, on the beach. It's amazing. Oh, my God. There. We do have spaces, a few spaces available. Not a lot, but there's a few. Um, when is that coming up? So that is going to be in May. Mm-hmm. So registration is open right now. Um, most of the spots are... Are, the spots are filling up really fast. I don't know how many we have left, but not not a lot. So I'd sign up now. Hurry up! <laughs> yep, hurry up! Okay. Well, um, so the the last question I usually ask is about kindness, and the name of my podcast mm-hmm. is "Follow Your Kind." And um, I, I've said it many mm-hmm. times. I'm sure listeners are already tired of that, but I, 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 the premise is that I believe that all of us are brought into this world being inherently kind. And sometimes through our experiences and through maybe confusion, we unlearn how to be kind, or maybe we don't consider fully the consequences of our action. So it just takes a little bit of intention, reflection of defining our own value of kindness and and intentionally following it every single day. And my hope is that through conversations with uh, people like you, um, maybe uh, people would get inspired by other people's values of kindness so they can define their own and follow their uh, kind of kindness. So I'm curious about what is kindness for you and um, how do you get to follow it in your daily life? Uh, kindness is everything. I mean, when you think about, you know, what is the purpose, what is it, you know, what is the guiding principle of life? You know, for me, it's, is it kind, you know, be kind to others. And I mean, and that is to to all living things, you know, it's, it's such a simple thing. It asks nothing of you to be kind to people, to be kind to animals. It takes nothing from you to be kind to people and be kind to non-human animals on the planet, to be kind to yourself, to be kind in the way that you talk to yourself, the way that you treat yourself. It takes nothing from you. In fact, you only gain significantly by it. So I think that at the end of the day, kindness is really all that matters. 
because kindness drives all love, all compassion, and everything on the planet. And if you can start your day with kindness and end your day with kindness, I think that uh, it can make an incredible impact on yourself and the world around you. Like at the end of the day, you know, like I've said, you know, we live in a culture that is so bent on being right, you know? And sometimes we sacrifice kindness for the sake of being right. We'll be overtly rude to someone in order to prove ourselves and our point. And at the end of the day, is it really worth making a, proving a point or, you know, making a difference? And I think that we can make the biggest difference through kindness. That's beautiful. I'm just blown away. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so oh, glad Robbie introduced us. No, I really appreciate everything pleasure. you do. You're an absolute inspiration. I cannot wait to share this. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I, I can't wait to, to come back on your show and talk to you more about what, what I'm doing. And uh, it's going to be great. And, and I really do. I hope to meet you in person sometime because I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you.